This is Living with Miles. I'm Miles. Morning. <laughs> I got nothing. Look, if it's not going to work, I'm not going to use it. That's just right off the table right now. This is people's work lives, man. It's, it's the stuff that matters. Where did that come from? I am way on board. If you can inspire pride in other people, they'll follow you. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Hey, I have something a little different I want to do this time. There was a really interesting article from the New York Times that I read uh, last week, and I want to go over it because I think it's really relevant to something, and there's there's a couple of insights I have on here. The article is written by Aaron Griffith, and it was, it was posted on January 26, 2019. It's called, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And it's a really interesting article because I think it really speaks to... Uh, an interesting notion of generationality, I guess. And it also speaks to living with passion and, and when passion can be, can be used, misused and how we need to take a pragmatic approach to these things. So I really wanted to go over it. It might be a little bit of a longer episode this time. We'll see how it goes. So I thought I'd start out by reading the, the article itself. And this is again from the New York times. Why are young people pretending to love work? I saw the greatest, lo- greatest minds of my generation log 18-hour days and then boast about hashtag hustle on Instagram. When did performative workaholism become a lifestyle? Well, right off the bat, that first question, it's been a lifestyle, but it wasn't a lifestyle of this generation. At least, it's, it's a lifestyle of entrepreneurship. But anyway, we'll move on. <clears throat> Never once at the start of my work week, Not in my morning coffee shop line, not in my crowded subway commute, not as I begin my bottomless inbox slog, have I paused, looked to the heavens, and whispered, hashtag, thank God it's Monday. Apparently, that makes me a traitor to my generation. She she is a millennial, and I'm predicting based on her time when she's in college. I learned this during a series of recent visits to WeWork locations in New York where the throw pillows implore busy tenants to, quote, do what you love, unquote. Neon signs demand they, quote, hustle harder, unquote. And murals spread the gospel of TGIM. Even the cucumbers in WeWork's water coolers have an agenda. Don't stop when you're tired, someone recently carved into the floating vegetable flesh. Stop when you are done. Kool-Aid drinking metaphors are rarely this literal. Welcome to Hustle Culture. It is obsessed with striving, relentlessly positive, devoid of humor, and, once you notice it, impossible to escape. Rise and Grind is both the theme of a Nike ad campaign and the title of a book by Shark Tank Shark. New media upstarts like The Hustle, which produces a popular business newsletter and conference series, and 1.37 p.m., a content company created by patron saint of hustling, Gary Vinerchuk, glorify ambition, not as a means to an end, but as a lifestyle. The current state of entrepreneurship is bigger than career, reads the 1.37 p.m. About Us page. It's ambition, grit, and hustle. It's a live performance that lights up your creativity, a sweat session that sends your endorphins coursing, a visionary who expands your way of thinking. From this point of view, not only does one never stop hustling, one never exits a kind of work rapture in which the chief purpose of exercising or attending a concert is to get inspiration that leads back to the desk. 
Ryan Harwood, the chief executive of 1.37pm's parent company, told me that the site's content is aimed at a younger generation of people who are seeking permission to follow their dreams. They want to know how to own their moment at any given moment, he said. Owning one's moment is a clever way to rebrand surviving the rat race. In the new work culture, enduring or even merely liking one's job is not enough. Workers should love what they do and then promote that love on social media, thus fusing their identities to that of their employers. Why else would LinkedIn build its own version of Snapchat stories? That is an interesting notion. That That is something that I... I it's a it's an amazing thing that I do want to talk about at some point. This is toil glamour, and it is going mainstream. Most visibly, WeWork, which investors recently valued at $47 billion, is on its way to becoming the Starbucks of office culture. It has exported its brand of performative workaholism to 27 countries with 400,000 tenants, including workers from 30% of the global Fortune 500. In January, WeWork's founder, Adam Neumann, announced that his startup was rebranding itself as the We Company to reflect an expansion into residential real estate and education. Describing the shift, Fast Company wrote, Rather than just renting desks, the company aims to encompass all aspects of people's lives in both physical and digital worlds. The ideal client, one imagines, is someone so enamored with the WeWork office aesthetic, whip-cracking cucumbers and all, that she sleeps in a WeLive apartment works out at a Rise by Wee gym, and sends her children to a Wee Grow school. From, the va- from this vantage, Office Space, the Gen X slacker pin that came out 20 years ago next month, feels like science fiction from a distant realm. It's almost impossible to imagine a startup worker bee of today confessing, as protagonist Peter Gims does, it's not that I'm lazy, it's just that I don't care. Workplace indifference just doesn't have a socially acceptable hashtag. It's not difficult to view hustle culture as a swindle. After all, convincing a generation of workers to beaver away is convenient for those at the top. Quote, the vast majority of people beating the drums of hustle mania are not the people doing the actual work. They're the managers, financiers, and owners, unquote, said David Heinemeyer Hansen, the co-founder of Basecamp, a software company. We spoke in October, and he was promoting his new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, about creating healthy companies culture. Mr. Heinmeier Hansen said that despite data showing long hours improve neither productivity nor creativity, myths about overwork persist because they justify the extreme wealth created for a small group of elite techies. It's grim and exploitive. Exploitative, he said. Elon Musk, who stands to reap stock compensations upwards of $50 billion if his company Tesla meets certain performance levels, is a prime example of extolling work by the many that will primarily benefit him. He tweeted in November that there are easier places to work than Tesla, but nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. The correct number of hours, quote, varies per person, he, he continued, but it is, quote, about 80 sustained, peaking at 100 at times. Pain level increases exponentially above 80. Unquote. Mr. Musk, who has more than 24 million Twitter followers, further noted that if you love what you do, it mostly doesn't feel like work. Even he had to soften the lie of TGIM with the parathetical, the mostly part. 
arguably the technology industry started this culture of work zeal sometime around the turn of the millennium. Yes, I was there. I was there when it happened, when the likes of Google started to feed, massage, and even play doctor to its employees. The perks were meant to help companies attract their best talent and keep employees at their desks longer. It seemed enviable enough. Who wouldn't want an employer that literally took care of your dirty laundry? But today, as I mean, that okay, so just to back up, that's an, a vast oversimplification of at least my view of what was going on. But yes, there was certainly that aspect of it. That also doesn't, doesn't take into account that there were, um, that it was it was an industry that was actually allowing people to have that opportunity to work that way. It was an industry allowing people to to really throw themselves into things without a whole lot of constraints. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of labor law surrounding it. I mean, not or there's no organized labor in software. There was and there wasn't any desire for it. These were really smart people being allowed to be really smart for a really dedicated period of time. And and you know, it was a different kind of environment. It was a different kind of culture. And when the alternative was working a nine to five, it, it, it was also, it, it was easy to get into. It was I mean, relatively early back in the day. So there were a lot of factors here. It's not just, you know, the, the exploitation that went on at the time. There was also a desire by at least myself and my peers for it to be that way. So, so that we could actually have these great opportunities to, to, to build things. Anyway, I digress. But today, back to the article, but, but today, as tech culture infiltrates every corner of the business world, its hymns to the virtues of relentless work remind me of nothing so much as Soviet-era propaganda, which promoted impossible-seeming feats of worker productivity to motivate the labor force. One obvious difference, of course, is that those Stakhanovite posters had an anti-capitalist bent, criticizing the fat cats profiting from the enterprise. Today's messages glorify personal profit even if bosses and investors, not workers, are the ones capturing most of the gains. Wage growth has been essentially stagnant for years. Perhaps we've all gotten a little hungry for meaning. Participation in organized religion is falling, especially among American millennials. In San Francisco, where I live, I've noticed that the concept of productivity has taken on an almost spiritual dimension. Techies here have internalized the idea. Rooted in the Protestant work ethic, that work is not something you do or get what you want to get what you want. The work itself is all. Therefore, any life hack or company perk that optimizes their day, allowing them to fit in even more work, is not just described but inherently good. Aidan Harper, who created a European Workweek shrinkage campaign called Four Day Week, argues that this is dehumanizing and toxic. It creates the assumption. Quote, it creates the assumption that the only value we as human beings, we have as human beings, is our productivity capability, our ability to work rather than our humanity, unquote, he told me. It's cultists, Mr. Harper added, to convince workers to buy into their own exploitation with a change the world message. It's creating the idea that Elon Musk is your high priest, he said. You're going into your church every day and worshiping at the altar of work. And there's something to that. I'll definitely, I'll definitely agree there. The, the, the super successful among the the tech elite, especially the young ones, the Zuckerbergs, the Musks, have been are glorified beyond a, a great deal of reason. I think. I mean, by comparison to other people that have had similar achievements in the non-tech industry? Do we, do we even know of any? 
Anyway, back to the article. For congregants of the Cathedral of Perpetual Hustle, <laughs> love that, spending time on anything that's not work-related has become a reason to feel guilty. Jonathan Crawford, a San Francisco-based entrepreneur, told me that he sacrificed his relationships and gained more than 40 pounds while working on Store Envy, his e-commerce startup. If he socialized, it was at a networking event. If he read, it was a business book. He rarely did anything that did not have a direct ROI or return on investment for his company. Mr. Crawford changed his lifestyle after he realized it made him miserable. This is the thing I want to talk about. This point right here. So put a put a thumb tap in the tack in this idea. He changed his lifestyle after he realized it made him miserable. This is a this is a transition in humanity. This isn't just a transition in in one person. This is a transition that goes through anybody that wants to be successful and wants to throw themselves into the work. Everyone comes to this. At least everyone I know comes to this. Anyway. Yeah, hint, hashtag midlife crisis. Anyway, now, uh, back to the article. Now, as an entrepreneur in residence at 500 startups, an investment firm, he tells fellow founders to seek out non-work-related activities like reading fiction, watching movies, or playing games. Uh, not sure that'll work. Somehow, this comes off as radical advice. It's oddly eye-opening to them because they didn't realize they saw themselves as a resource to be expended, Mr. Crawford said. It's easy to become addicted to the pace and stress of work in 2019. Bernie Klinder, uh, a consultant for a large tech company, said he tried to limit himself to live 11-hour days per week, which added up, or to five 11-hour days per week, which adds up to an extra day of productivity. If your peers are competitive, working a, quote, normal work week, unquote, will make you look like a slacker, he wrote in an email. Still, He's realistic about his place in the rat race. I try to keep in mind that if I drop dead tomorrow, all of my acrylic workspace awards would be in the trash the next day, he wrote, and my job would be posted in the paper before my obituary. The logical endpoint of excessive avid work, of course, is burnout. Yes, and this is something we need to talk about. That is the subject of a recent viral essay by BuzzFeed culture critic Anne Helen Pedersen which thoughtfully addresses one of the incongruities of hustle mania and the young. Namely, if millennials are supposedly lazy and entitled, how can they be also be obsessed with killing at other jobs? Okay, there's a bunch of misnomers in there. Um, anyway, we're talking about different millennials. <laughs> you're, you're, you, can't, you can't compare. Millennials who are engaging the entrepreneurial spirit and in, engaging the, the, the building or millennials that are basically giving up and, and, and hiding. That's really the, the piece there. Anyway. Millennials, Ms. Peterson argues, are just desperately striving to meet their own high expectations. An entire generation was raised to expect that good grades and extracurricular overachievement would reward them with fulfilling jobs that feed their passions. Instead, they wound up with precarious, meaningless work and a mountain of student loan debt. And so pose posing as a rise and grinder lusty for monday mornings starts to make sense as a defense mechanism most jobs even most good jobs are full of pointless drudgery most corporations let us down in some way and yet years after the hbo satire silicon valley made the vacuous mission statement making the world a better place a recruiting punchline many companies still cheerlead the, vir the virtues of work with high-minded messagings for example spotify a company that lets you listen to music that says says that its mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity. 
Dropbox, which lets you upload files and stuff, says its purpose is, quote, to unleash the world's creative energy by designing a more enlightened way of working, unquote. Dave Spencer, a professor of economics at Leeds University Business School, says that such posturing by companies, economists, and politicians dates at least to the rise of the mercantilism in the 16th century Europe. There has been an ongoing struggle by employers to venerate work in ways that distract from its unappealing features, he said. But such propaganda can't backfire. In the 17th century England, work was lauded as a cure for vice, Mr. Spencer said. But the unrewarding truth just drove workers to drink more. Internet companies may have miscalculated in encouraging employees to equate their work with their intrinsic value as human beings. After a long era of basking in positive esteem, the tech industry is experiencing a backlash, both broad and fierce, on subjects from monopolistic behavior to spreading disinformation and inciting radical violence. And workers are discovering how much power they wield. In November, some 20,000 Googlers participated in a walkout protesting the company's handling of sexual abusers. Other companies' employees shut down an artificial intelligence contract with the Pentagon that could have helped military drones become more lethal. Mr. Heinmeier Hansen cited the employee protest as evidence that millennial workers would eventually revolt against the culture of overwork. People aren't going to stand for this, he said, urging an expletive, using an expletive, or by the propaganda that external bliss, that eternal bliss lies in monitoring your own bathroom breaks. He was referring to an interview that the former chief executive of Yahoo, Marissa Meyer, gave in 2016, in which she said that working 130 hours a week was possible if you're strategic about when you sleep, when you shower, and how often you go to the bathroom. Ultimately, workers must decide if they admire or reject this level of devotion. Ms. Meyer's comments were widely panned on social media when the interview ran, but since then, Quora users have eagerly shared their own strategies for mimicking her schedule. Likewise, Mr. Musk's pain level tweets drew plenty of critical takes, but they also garnered just as many accolades and requests for jobs. The grim reality of 2019 is that being a million, being a billionaire, begging a billionaire for employment via Twitter is not considered embarrassing, but a perfectly plausible way to get ahead. On some level, you have to respect the hustlers who see a dismal system and understand that success in it requires total shameless buy-in. If we're doomed to toil away until we die, we may as well pretend to like it even on Mondays. So that's the article. Now, there are so, there are so many angles that, that we could go into on this, and I might do that over uh, the next few episodes. I don't know. But there's one that immediately came to mind. First of all, the, the, the whole notion that the world the way it is today suddenly came up overnight out of some exploita- exploitive methodology is 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 an interesting notion to me because yes is there exploitation absolutely i'm not going to say that there isn't however i'm also going to acknowledge that in that in that realm of exploitation there's a lot of people that aren't exploited they're willful participants and i think that that's actually in in my experience it's actually a majority of the people they're willful participants in this game they're actively involved they're active participants and there's a reason for that. But the reasons may have gotten lost over the last 20 years. Uh, when, I, when I entered the workforce in 1990, computers didn't exist. You know, it, it, it didn't, we didn't have anything 
in a long, I mean, they existed, but the internet wasn't there. And we certainly didn't have that. They came along, that was invented as we were going. And throughout the 90s, the inventions of the better communication and the, and the excitement of these crazy inventions, which were really complicated to build, and the, the ambition to make them easier to understand, to, the easier to build, easier to integrate, easier to work with, led to a bunch of very passionate people who were able to use their brains and were able to apply it into something that could, I mean, they really could become thought workers. We, we could allow thought working to become profitable. It could be a way to make a living. It could be a way to do something. And so the ability to work, there was such a hunger for it that the hours, if, especially if you could get into that kind of position, the hours didn't really matter. Not for those that were really going to get on board and really going to make it happen. But there were also other things going on at that time. You know, as every generation, there's a, there's a wonderful book that I recommend called Keys to the Kingdom by Alison Armstrong. And it talks about, and in her case, she words it as a, as a, as a, 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 the amazing world of men. It's, it's, it's her way of looking at it. But if you take, it's not about men and women. I mean, even her own, her own uh, philosophy changed over the years. It's not about men or women. It's about people that take on that, that focused, productive role versus the more social role. And the, and the way that the mind looks at those two problems and engages in the challenges in each one. And those that take on the, the, the single focused, the, the, the driven, ambitious, and hungry role, that, that, that we classically see with all of these entrepreneurs that we're glorifying. Uh, there's there's a progression that goes on there. And the first progression is the great adventure. And then comes the dedication to life. And she refers to this as a knight and a prince phase. And this dedication to life process, this happens, this comes in usually around your mid-20s and lasts until, you, until your early to mid-40s. And if you look at the generational environment of millennials now, millennials are now in the middle of that. So if you're looking only with a lens toward millennials and you're looking only at the millennial generation, you're looking at a generation of, of what I call the builder phase. And the builder phase does do that. It dedicates itself. It throws itself completely into what it's building, whether that's your career, whether that's wealth, whether that's your adventures. And we have so many means through which to explore that now that we hadn't had in the past. You can be... You can present your stuff. You can share your stuff with the world, with the internet. I mean, public, whether it's social media or whether it's YouTube or you're, you know, you become a, a creator through any of the things, YouTubes or blogs or, or podcasts or whatever it is you're doing. There's so many opportunities now that didn't exist before. Now, these guys are really, this whole generation is really throwing themselves into it and dedicating themselves to it. But the secret is they're not the first. They're not the only ones. This isn't the first time we've seen this. The generation before them had the same thing. The generation before them had the same thing. This concept of the hustle being a lifestyle. I talked to a man who's a retired entrepreneur uh, at one of my social events. The man is, is in his mid-70s. And he talked to me and I, he said, so are you thinking about going entrepreneurship? I said, yep. I said, well, get ready for the hustle lifestyle. Yeah, here's a man in his 70s talking about the hustle. This is nothing new, but it is about entrepreneurship. And because of technology and because of communication and because of the way that we can interact and that we can make a living with our minds rather than 
with our with with requiring our hands or other things we have the capability for those that have the minds to to do that kind of work we have the capability to get it's a pretty low bar for entry and we can make pretty good results pretty quick if we're willing to to work hard and keep learning and this building phase is this this era where you're building your world where you're where you're you're building this dynamic it it's there it becomes your everything for like 15 years and so we here we have an entire generation going into that but that building gets built and then when you come along you start finding out you you get to a point where you've actually built whatever it is you wanted to achieve and the 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 funny part is generation after generation people don't understand that or they, they have to learn anew for themselves the next lesson that comes in the pipe it's the next lesson it's the it's the lesson of who you are and whether what you built was actually worth the investment and this is a wonderful lesson to learn but it's, and it's a hard lesson to learn and the the mechanics of that we call i mean we classically call this the midlife crisis and it's a it's a terrible thing and and i mean it's a terrible explanation and and Armstrong in her in her book does a really good job of explaining what that really is in in her in her metaphor for it but this is this is normal this is this is a normal way of being for anyone that wants to go and enter into the single focus, you know, pursue your ambition dedicatedly. It's going to be that way. Now there's an entirely different way to live, but we don't glorify it today. And that's the social side. That's the the caretaking side. That's the networking side. That's the interaction and the and the coming coming together of people. That's the socialization aspect. But that's not what we glorify today because that's not where Zuckerberg and and Tesla or and uh, Musk make their have made their inroads. They've made their inroads through technology, and they have these insane work hours. Bill Gates had these insane work hours. Bozos has these insane work hours. This isn't anything new. Executives, every executive I've ever known has never even dreamed of pulling less than a less than a twelve hour day. It's it's one of those reasons why when I look at executives, I'm I'm sorry the, the C level guys they they their day isn't at all normal, and that's just that's just the way that it works at that level. So when we glorify that then yeah, of course, that's going to become the behavior that, that we need to emulate in some way. The hard part about it is that it is not a human, it's not the way the human body is supposed to work. It's not the way the human engagement is supposed to happen. The human body isn't designed to operate this way. It isn't designed for these endless drudgery slogs. And I glorified it. You know, my entire generation, everyone I ever worked with, this wasn't something that we glorified as some cultural movement. This was just every day. You couldn't stop us from working, even if you wanted to. And they tried in some cases that we had to be forced to take vacation because we had accrued over 260 hours or whatever it was that was the maximum, which like takes two years to accrue. But we'd accrued all of this vacation time and they had to take it away from us in order to get us to actually use it. So, you know, let's 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 lighten up on the on on the aspect that this is a that that this is entirely a, a millennial thing or that it's entirely a bad thing. 
However, there is a piece that I need to bring up, and this is really what I, I wanted to bring up in this. And this has gone really long, I, I admit that, but I think this is important. If you're going to incorporate this, you have to incorporate burnout. You have to actually think about and include burnout in the process because burnout matters. And so what you can do is you can say, oh, we're going to live a life to prevent burnout. Okay, that works for people over 40 because the that works for the uh, the people that have actually done their building phase, they've actually built what they want, and now they're ready to branch out to others. All these people that are giving advice, they've come on the other side. All of these leaders that the that that the author was saying are exploiting the system and giving all these great these great pieces of advice to to the the next young generation. Of course. Because they lived through it and they did it. It's not that the new generation is doing anything differently. It's that they haven't lived through it yet. And so here you have a generation of people that just went through this saying, oh, you know, these were these. This was a bad. This was a mistake. This was I, I, I should have done this differently. And they want to spare those coming after them that pain. It's true for almost every generation. You want to spare the next generation that pain. And so. All this advice about how to, you know, live your hobbies and find fun things to do that aren't work and all these other things. Because these are the things that those people felt they had missed out on when they had when they had come to the other side of been successful. And so, no, it's not how they became successful. Absolutely not. But it's how they wish they had become successful. So on the practical on the practical side of it, though, if you're going to live that life, look, you're going to burn out and it takes usually it takes about six years. So go ahead and institutionalize the burnout. Expect yourself to burn out. And in, in, if you really dedicate yourself to a, to a hustle lifestyle, you can hold that up for about six, seven years. It's very funny that it's about six, seven years because at that seven-year moment, it, 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 the seven-year itch comes into effect in marriages and other things. There are other seven-year you know, seven timelines that are really interesting. Even, even biblically, they talk about seven-year cycles. But this... This notion of seven years, in seven years, if you do something for six, six, seven years and you dedicate yourself and you slog your way through it, what's going to end up happening is certain aspects are going to become routine and certain things are going to become well-known. You're going to get really skilled. You're going to be, you're really going to be kind of a, a master of what you, what you are working on, no matter what it is. And if it doesn't change, then you do end up where the, the benefit, the excitement, the, the, the things that you get back as a result of your efforts, don't provide the same amount of benefit as they used to. They don't feed you. They don't, they don't reward you anymore. Reward, just like everything else, requires variation. It requires a kind of, of, of evolution. It requires, a, it requires an increase and a change. And so this, this whole world becomes, it, the work no longer becomes valuable and you become disgruntled and you get grumpy. Now, if you can institutionalize this and make this work, this, this is going to be really interesting. And this is for, if you stay in the same, like, for example, if you're staying in the same position or lifestyle for six, seven years, this is going to happen. So go ahead and prep for it. What we used to do in our environment was when we saw somebody at the six or seven year burnout point, we would actually put them on a special project. We'd give them something else to do. We'd give them something that didn't really, it may not have had the same deadlines. It doesn't have the same grind effect as the others. It's a, 
It's a project that, yes, it'd be, it'll, it'll produce results, it'll be something interesting, but it basically gives them a break. Similarly, I've seen some companies do sabbaticals, and I think sabbaticals are a great idea for exactly the same reason. Education's been doing sabbaticals for a long time, where you take after so many years, you take a year off to go and replenish your mind, to, re, to, to go and spend time re- updating yourselves with what is what is new and what is necessary and and with new and innovative things to re-inspire you now one of the things that i observed is that after that first um that first one you have a seven-year cycle then you have a one-year recovery after that it's about five years so you're you're four or five years before the next one comes but notice what's happening now we're getting to that 13 to 15 year lifespan that 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 period of the builder and so you're going to start seeing that your successes start manifesting the benefits that you've been trying to build at about that 15-year point. And suddenly, now again, the motivation to do something, the motivation and the, and the reward for doing this work, and it's work, no question, uh, kind of it, it, it kind of wears off. And, and so now you've done it, you've achieved it. And the question comes, was it worth it? Now that's a totally different discussion and that's a totally different thing. And it's coming. Oh, you millennials, it's coming. You're going to get there. And then you're going to be, you know, you're going to sit there and you're going to have your articles of wisdom to share with the generation after you. But this isn't new. This isn't unique. This is just now becoming now the it becoming primary social culture is and i'm a bit concerned about that because if that's the case then when this crash happens when the millennials start going through their wondering whether it was all worth it we're going to see just as we see a massive evolution in the way that business and workplace environment and culture is happening today we're going to see a huge shift in life value analysis Probably starting in about, oh, let's see, if millennials started in uh, like early 80, then we should start seeing it here in the next couple of, in the next five to 10 years. We're going to start seeing significant shifts of life value discussions. And that's just going to be what that happens. And then they will have that, there will be that, that next evolution of value proposition. So, so that's basically what I wanted to cover. I know this is long and I, I, I appreciate you hanging out with me. This is going to be something I might talk about for a while. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But I, I think it's really important. If you're going to work that lifestyle, you can handle burnout. And it's going to happen. So expect it. Engage for it. Plan for it. And know that this isn't new so there may be experience to draw on if you're willing look at entrepreneurs from other generations because entrepreneurship these are all traits of entrepreneurship we're just glorifying entrepreneurship as a culture so now it's it's becoming this this thing but this these whole statements that entrepreneurship takes a lot of work no entrepreneur in the world doesn't know that It's, of course it does. And the hustle is the way you have to live in order to, in order to really get some significant advantages if you're, if you're doing it. You know, my dad told me there are three ways to get rich. One was to work very, very hard. One was to be very, very lucky. The third one was to marry it. So, and if you do that, you work very, very hard and you're very, very lucky. So the, 
the whole paradigm of, of, of needing to work hard, look, it's the one you can control and it's the one that you can do. So do it, but know that it does come with a price and that's okay. If we prepare for the price and we get ready for that price, it's fine. It's a little sick, I think. It's a little sick to say, yes, work yourself to death. And then when you break, we'll repair you. But since you're going to work yourself to death anyway, well, okay, we will take advantage. We will take the opportunity to say, thank you for all that work. And when you break, we will patch you up. And because we know how to do that. All right. That's going to wrap it up for today. Uh, if you want to join up on the conversation, there is Facebook at Living with Miles. And if you want to subscribe, by all means, subscribe at iTunes or at SoundCloud with Living with Miles. And I will talk to you next time.